This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Crowds are returning to stadiums in some places to watch sporting events that were being played in front of empty seats during surges of the coronavirus pandemic over the past nearly year and a half. That doesn't mean that there weren't any crowds anywhere. Crowds gathered last summer to protest racialized police violence all over the world. Crowds formed to protest a litany of policies that were implemented as precautions in order to arrest the spread of the virus. Crowds even protested the outcome of an election. But now with crowds returning to sports in some places, let's take a moment to do what very few have done in the past, and that is consider what it means to be in a crowd and part of a crowd. What is it about being part of the masses? And what happens when those crowds turn into what the media calls a mob? As fans return to form a crowd at stadiums, we will speak in a few with literary theorist Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, author of Crowds, the Stadium as a Ritual of Intensity. Hans is the Albert Gerard Professor in Literature Emeritus at Stanford University. Hans is also author of many other books, including two earlier works related to crowds. Books written in English include 2004's Production of Presence and his 2006 work In Praise of Athletic Beauty. Hans's most recent writing prior to crowds was his 2013 book After 1945, Latency as Origin of the Present, and the 2014 work Our Broad Present time and contemporary culture. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show. Well, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. How have you been, Richard? How was your Memorial Day weekend? Oh, it was fine. Lots of people already shooting off those fireworks. (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) At 1029 on Memorial Day night, there was a professional fireworks show. No, on Sunday night professional fireworks show started up in our neighborhood lasted like 25 minutes included a grand finale i know the entire thing was illegal crazy (laughs) so how bad is it in your neighborhood wasn't too bad but there was definitely some people shooting off or blowing up like those like m80 type or the quarter sticks the real big ones out in my alley and like all the dogs in the neighborhood were suffering dearly oh god that's the worst part is watching your animals freak out my three-day weekend was an exciting three days of cleaning my house visiting with family for the first time in over a year getting kissed on the lips by my four-year-old great niece and then my three-day weekend became a four-day weekend because despite being vaccinated i thought my great niece who has contact with people in variant riddled michigan I thought she gave me some strain of COVID that the vaccine does not address because I could not stop coughing, could not sleep Monday night, waking up dozens of times because I was unable to breathe. Still having a little bit of an issue right now. Turns out I must have allergies because after taking an antihistamine and decongestion, I could suddenly breathe again without coughing. Problem is my doctor tested me just before the pandemic and determined I have no allergies, so I'm looking forward to seeing my doctor again so we can figure out what the hell is wrong with me. More important than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? Well, kids are walking virus factories, you know. They are, they are, and it was a huge mistake. I did not know she was going to kiss me on the lips. She just leaned in and gave me one. Oh, <laughs> uh, kids. So what are we talking about? This? Uh, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit 
for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience. Uh, there isn't one. Just in case you're wondering, we've looked around. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever ch- uh, piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can email it to me at Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's Tomorrow's Show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff publicly shames himself. Richard will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. Yes, I do. Better late than never. (laughs) Always. This week's hangover cure is pesto eggs. And this actually sounds kind of yummy. The metro.co.uk article, quote, pesto eggs is the, and I don't believe you're making me say this, <laughs> have we stooped this low? <laughs> yes. The TikTok approved <laughs> breakfast that'll cure your hangover. It reports that the recipe was shared on the platform by Amy Willachowski. Very good. And states... Pesto eggs are an easy breakfast you can customize to your taste. They're also packed with protein and healthy fats. But, and most importantly, they're delicious. The story quotes Amy saying, I swear, your life will be changed. (laughs) And she puts a table, as she puts a tablespoon of green pesto into a frying pan. The article continues, use your spoon to spread the sauce around the pan and let the oil in it heat up. Jarred pesto works just fine. Just make sure it has all that all that all important oil. From there, you can cook your eggs like you normally would. Amy makes fried eggs, but you can opt for scrambled or whatever tickles your fancy. <laughs> the pesto eggs or pegsto pegsto pegsto, I guess. As people have been calling the dish online, can be eaten on toast. And you're free to add whatever ingredients takes your fancy so that makes this week's hangover cure pesto eggs and chuck yes you know if you add ham to this dish yes what do you get i don't know green eggs and oh, ham. look at you aren't you the genius you know where it says jarred pesto i thought for sure that was a guy jared pesto i know I, like that word like confused me for a while i was like it's it's spelled right but it just sure sounds not correct <laughs> exactly. when you're, uh... and actually we did this on uh, monday morning we had pesto eggs, and they were fantastic. Absolutely delicious. I, this is probably the best hangover cure we've ever had, not as far as curing a hangover, but just being delicious. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, and you can help with the horrible business of your friends here at This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. As we were heading into the Memorial Day weekend last Friday, 
I did my annual griping about how Memorial Day is about wiping out our memories of the cruelties of war and replacing them with myths glorifying violence, brutality, and all of the cruelties of war from torture to rape to murder and any war crime against humanity you can imagine. With non-military personnel outnumbering soldiers killed during warfare, innocent civilians are far more likely to die and far more likely to be women and children dying. And do we have a day that does anything to memorialize the real victims of war, the ones not doing the killing? That is, civilians? Hell no, Memorial Day is about erasing their memories so we can get back to supporting wars and the military-industrial complex. We also announced how we will be determining if and when we might possibly, probably, potentially, actually, maybe have our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment as it relates to an email we got this weekend. Meanwhile, we shared an interview we did live in studio at WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment 10 years ago on May 28, 2011, a conversation with Hamayun Porzad, a leader of the Network of Iranian Labor Unions, who was touring the United States at the time in an attempt to build a relationship between the U.S. labor movement and the one he represented in Iran. Yeah, who knew uh, Iranian labor unions were trying to cooperate with U.S. labor unions? Oh, yeah, nobody, because the only media outlets that would give Hamayun a space to talk were places like our show, because... This is not the media. This is hell. But you can only hear why Memorial Day is pro-war propaganda while showing a complete lack of respect for the families and friends of civilians killed in war in an attempt by U.S. and Iranian labor groups to work together, an attempt that was censored by the establishment media by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you will not only get access to last week's Patreon podcast and all upcoming Friday morning Patreon podcasts, but all the Patreon shows we've done so far, which is somewhere between 150 and 200 shows, so each with a monologue by me that you cannot find anywhere else online, as well as a classic interview that is currently not available online. So it's like a whole extra year of This Is Hell. And on Memorial Day, we got an email from Joshua who writes, I heard what you said about Memorial Day, and it jibes with something I've been thinking about for a few years. Memorial Day for civilians victims of war. People like the idea, but I haven't taken any steps to try to make it happen. It remains a backburner idea. Really eager to hear what you have to say about that. Joshua. Joshua, what if instead of having a new Memorial Day for civilians, civilian victims of war, we instead just included civilians in the current Memorial Day, making more visible the horrors of war instead of celebrating heroics? What if every year on Memorial Day weekend, instead of the media cycling and recycling through old war propaganda, there were also reminders of war crimes and the actual targeting of civilians, unarmed civilians, and often women and children during war. And sadly, we continue to have more civilians to memorialize seemingly every day. So yes, Joshua, totally in on your Civilians Memorial Day idea, but I think it would have a much more intense impact if we just started including civilians in the Memorial Day we already have. So write it down, the first Memorial Day when we will honor all of those killed in war, including the civilians who outnumber military members who tragically lost their lives in wartime. That will be taking place Monday, May 30th, 2022. So set yourself a reminder. Memorial Day for all whose lives were lost in war beginning Monday, May 30th, 2022. We also got an email from Tom who writes, 
Hi, Chuck. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys at Carrie's Lounge before too long because too long may be too late the way things are going lately. Sheesh. Say, that interview with Craig Robertson about his book, The Filing Cabinet, was intriguing. By now, I should know better than to skip any This Is Hell interviews, even when their title sounds less than compelling. FYI, I happened upon this book by Hannah Appel that sounds like a good candidate for a This Is Hell interview. The Licit Life of Capitalism. Tom then quotes the Duke University website, which says people and places differentially valued by gender, race, and colonial histories are the terrain on which the rules of capitalist economy are built. Appel shows how the corporate forum and the contract offshore rigs and economic theory are the assemblages of liberalism and race, expertise and gender, technology and domesticity that enable the licit life of capitalism practices that are legally sanctioned widely replicated and ordinary at the same time as they are messy, contested, and arguably indefensible. Cheers, Tom. Tom, Hannah sounds like a great guest, but what part of having a 40-plus minute conversation about a book with the title, The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information, what about that does not sound intriguing to you, Tom? I want to know. Is there something I'm missing? Am I the only one who thinks... Filing cabinets are a thrill a minute? Is it just me and Alex who suggested we have Craig Patterson on the show to talk about the history of filing cabinets? So don't just blame me. As far as hanging out at the bar immediately beneath this here studio from which we are streaming and recording at this moment, Carrie's Lounge, a week from today, next Wednesday, June 9th, we are going to be determining if and when we can hang out again when we have the return of philogeographer Rob Wallace, who was one of our very first guests to discuss the coronavirus with us back in March of 2022. You may remember Rob saying that at the very least, we are looking at a half a million people dead from the virus in the United States alone. That's when the CDC and President Trump were using numbers like 60 and 70,000. And sadly, Rob was far more accurate. It was a time when we were getting weekly reports from around the world here on This Is Hell on the pandemic, and nearly every person who reported to us said that here in the U.S. there was no way there would be any cooperation or being in this together, that safety protocols would be adamantly ignored, and rampant inequality and increasing poverty would all combine for a failed response here in the States. With Rob's unfortunately accurate predictions in mind, as well as our recent history of disunity here in the United States of America... Next Wednesday, June 9th, we will be getting an update from Rob on the virus, and we'll be figuring it out if and when we will have our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. So tune in a week from today to find out if and when we are going to be hosting our annual party. Coming up, crowds are returning to stadiums. And we'll take a deep dive into what it means to be part of a crowd. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience? And we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's episode of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly, and sadly... Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The pandemic made crowds impossible. When watching sporting events without crowds other than the physical presence of people, something was missing. 
Sure, you can watch whatever game or match you want from the comfort of your own home, but as many sports fans discovered during games played without an audience, the simple media consumption of a sport is not the same as actually being there live and in person and part of the crowd. With some places allowing fans back into stadiums, let's take a moment to consider what a crowd is, what it means to be part of the crowd. Here to help our understanding is literary theorist Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, author of Crowds, the Stadium as a Ritual of Intensity. Welcome to This is Hell, Hans. Hi, good morning from California. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation because I don't like to mention this on the show very often, a little bit embarrassed about it, but I am a sports fan and I do really enjoy watching sports. And when I am at matches, even even, uh, if it's a baseball game and I'm legally blind, I still really (laughs) enjoy being in the crowd. In your, in your, uh, what, so let me just start right there. What is it that you enjoy about being in a crowd at a soccer match? Yeah, I mean, if you're talking soccer, if we're not talking American professional sports, uh, I like to be in the cheap seats. I mean, my favorite team in the in European soccer, my, my, my favorite team in the U.S. is Stanford football, period. But my favorite team in European soccer is the team that always ends up second in the German league, Borussia Dortmund. And they have the largest uh, stadium in continental Europe, has a capacity of 85,000. But what makes it unique is which is not typical for our time, for our present, they have a standing only part that is 30,000 people. And they keep the tickets very cheap so that, I mean, Dortmund is a former, I mean, second industrial revolution town, cold steel mining that doesn't exist anymore. Today it's a town of many unemployed people, but they go there and uh, they are tough. And I think one of the reasons why the stadium is always selling out is not so much the team. The team is okay. The team is good. But, uh, it is this presence in the stadium. It is these 30,000 people uh, who are standing there, who are singing, who are very, very intense. And although, I mean, I'm 73 years old and, and maybe I could even afford a better ticket, but when I'm there, I like to be in that part of the stadium. I like to be among those people who are rough, those people who are um, a risk of violence in the stadium. That's not pretty, but but... Yes, uh, this is what attracts me. I mean, and then, you know, I wrote a whole book about it. could tell you further why I think this is exciting. But there is this goose flesh feeling when I'm in the crowd, sometimes even, not sometimes even, but, but it's guaranteed, even when the game is boring. So do crowds affect us then in a unique way? And, because, uh, do, well, they, do they change us in ways no other sociability, as you call it, changes us? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's um, in, as an intellectual problem, even an academic problem. Uh, of course, we're talking about a sociability that includes the body. And there's a problem, I think, uh, with the humanities, where I'm coming from, or with sociology. Whenever we talk about sociability, whenever we talk about society, we talk about things like shared interests, that would be Marx, you know, shared conditions of production, uh, solidarity. These are all important and good things. But it, in a way, excludes the body. So there is a sociability, we all know that intuitively, uh, that includes the body. We all know, for example, if you're in the teaching profession, that sitting around a seminar table or being with kids in a classroom is different from, from teaching through the screen, you know, I mean, Zoom or, or whatever remote uh, technology we have. So 
there is something to this present that we can achieve, that we can feel. We all know it intuitively, but uh, it is difficult to describe what exactly happens, what exactly produces, for example, in a stadium, in a stadium with such crowds, this goose flash feeling, also this temptation of violence. I can feel that. Uh, it doesn't always have to happen, and thank goodness it doesn't always happen, but, but there is such a feeling. But also, what produces the possibility that a seminar in real presence, seminar of people, you know, graduate seminar, 10, 15 people sitting around a table, is intellectually more productive than a seminar on screen. So you also mentioned that whenever I talk to European friends about the world of team sports in the United States, I feel the lack of a concept that would be the equivalent of the American franchise. And you talk about the kind of identity that mm -hmm. different types of fans have uh, attached their mm -hmm. team. You mentioned that European fans still resist the idea of a majority owner, although it has long become the economic reality in most professional soccer leagues, whereas the German <laughs> Soccer Federation even formally excludes any individual participation over 50% of the operating yeah. capital. So are concepts like franchises and team owners necessary in that team identification as supporters? Why is it necessary to not think of your team as a franchise that is controlled by well, I mean, it's a very it's a very different story. I mean first of all one shouldn't idealize like American intellectuals normally do the reality, for example, of European soccer. They don't have an equivalent word in any European language, not even European English. Uh, I mean, British English for franchise. Uh, nevertheless, you know, they are owned by shakes. They are owned by, by American owners. I mean, Manchester United, arguably the most popular soccer team in, in, in Europe, is owned by Glazer. That's a family who has uh, NFL ownership. So, I mean, it's not so ideal. Nevertheless, going back to America, I think uh, the identity, speaking the cultural profile, uh, of a European uh, soccer team, above all. I mean, that's the most popular sport, except rugby in France, is much closer to the identity profile of a college team. I mean, college teams also have huge financial implications. But uh, you could not imagine Michigan moving to a different university. I mean, Michigan has to be, you know, in, the, in, in that big stadium that they have in Ann Arbor on college, or, I mean, less popular, but as important for me, Stanford has to be on Stanford campus, has to be in Palo Alto, has to be playing against the arch-rival Berkeley, arch-rival UCLA. That cannot move. Uh, the identification um, always has something to do with your life story. I mean, I mean I'm a Stanford fan because late in life, I became Stanford faculty and, and I got to know American football and that is very, very important to me. Um, you know, if you are, for example, I'm a, a, I'm a fan of this uh, team in, in the German soccer league in Dortmund because my mother was from that town and my grandfather in 1956 took me to a game in what was the predecessor of the present day Champions League. So, Whereas I think um, if you have NFL season tickets or NBA season tickets, uh, baseball may be slightly different. You do that because you like the sport and there is a local team and you like the local team to win the championship. But I think the type of investment emotionally, passionately is very, very different. So can, can teams be successful on identity alone? How important is the crowd's identity to the team's success? Because you always hear that the most important thing 
is winning? Is winning the most important thing or is it team identity? Well, I mean, I do think uh, if I go to a stadium, it is important. Or let me put it this way. I mean, if you go to a stadium and, and only want to observe, only want to study, uh, you don't have a preference, even if the two teams, you know, for, I mean, you're completely neutral. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if the Miami Dolphins uh, are playing, let's say, uh, uh, Las Vegas, now in NFL, I, I, I don't really care. I have no local investment. I don't have the investment that I have in college. Or let's say if I see any team in college football play against Berkeley, I want Berkeley to lose because of the Stanford-Berkeley rivalry. So I think... I mean, you have more fun. Uh, you get more drawn into the event uh, if you want to, uh, if you want one team to win. I think this demonizing winning is 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 inadequate. I mean, nobody really. I mean, yes, there are these all these Olympic discourses. You know that this is not about winning. Well, I do think that you, you have fun if if you want to win, and also. Being an athlete, I never was a good athlete. But if you don't want to win, uh, you don't get the kind of intensity. Uh, that you really want to get. So, I mean, I don't, I think identity uh, and even strengthening identity and building identity is certainly something that comes as, as an important and, and sometimes beautiful, sometimes not so beautiful side effect uh, of watching sports, of being in sports. But I do think that if you don't want to win, if you don't want one of the teams, your team to win, you will never get into, and I'm a little bit pushing this word, intensity, which which I think is an important, the important component of being in the stadium. And I want to get to that in just a moment, but uh, you also write that Bo Russia, like um, uh, Manchester United in the English League, traces back its origins to the yes. Catholic workers' movement and also emphasizes the social affinity to the more famous FC Liverpool in England, whereas Schalke, as the uh, cross-city rival of Bo Russia, uh, has maintained during their time of greatest uh, athletic glory a distance from the National Socialist government in Germany. So outside of the stadium, how much of an impact do team identities have on local or national identities? Do team identities permeate our identity outside of stadiums? Yes, definitely. I do think, you know, that, that I mean, to use that example again, which is my central example, uh, in that book, which first came out in German, so what the, the edition you're referring now is an English translation, I had to write a preface because I was so locally focused on this Borussia Dortmund example, which is one of the most popular franchises, I think, internationally, in soccer and happens to be, uh, quote unquote, my team. Uh, first of all, as we were already saying, the idea that such a team could ever move from one city to the other uh, is completely unthinkable. Second, I mean, that team like Manchester United, and there's an affinity, comes out of the Catholic working movement. And until the present day, I'm not saying that they are left wing or anything like that. Uh, but uh, until the present day, they have this standing only crowd and you can get a ticket for a first league game for 12 euro. That is still a lot of money for some of those people who go, but they can go to every home game. They can go to every home game. And there is a flavor to that uh, that is particular. I mean, to give you another example, I mean, if you're a Dortmund fan in the German league, you cannot be a fan of Bayern Munich uh, because Bayern Munich is the team that wins nine out of ten times, quite literally, the German championship, which is pretty boring. That team, actually, was the team of the Jewish bourgeoisie uh, in Munich. 
And what this does, I mean, I have to say that, okay, so I have a certain, as an ex-German intellectual sympathy for them, which I wouldn't admit in a soccer environment, but I do have. But that means that this team, uh, and it's sad, despite having been by far the most successful sports franchise in Germany in the last 50 years, is not locally popular. Now, until the present day, and although people do not really know, but having emerged historically out of the Jewish bourgeoisie, of Munich, uh, you cannot be locally popular. And that is quite interesting, because if you ask people, everybody in Munich knows that in spite of the success, this team is not very popular. And if you ask people why, they wouldn't know. But I do think it has to do with the fact uh, that uh, they are not local. I mean, that they come out of the periphery, social periphery. To give you the sad counterexample, the more popular team in soccer, Munich, continues to be 1860 Munich, which sadly was the favorite team of the Nazis. I'm not saying that Munich until the present day is Nazi, but I, mean, I want to say that there is a historical depth to these identities you can identify with or not uh, that is unchangeable, that is different from the historical depth or not of those franchises that can move. I mean, they sometimes move in the NFL and the NBA, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and there's more or less, I would say the Los Angeles Lakers today have a certain local flavor. Uh, the New England Patriots have a certain flavor. But, uh, but the sheer fact that those teams can consider every year whether they want to move or not uh, is quite symptomatic. And you mentioned about the 80,000-seat Dortmund Stadium that the ultras, these are the very rabid fans in the non-seat general area of uh, low-cost tickets, they generate uh, this growing expectation of violence, which leads to crowd intensity, teetering on the line between peaceful crowd participation and crowd violence. So should we expect, with crowds coming back to stadiums and wanting to show their appreciation for returning and being potentially more intense, should we expect more violence as crowds return to stadiums because they will want to show that uh, intensity more now than they did in the past, maybe, and, and, and appreciation, too, for returning? I mean, in the first place, uh, okay, two things to start with. Uh, I will say uh that you cannot have a crowd, not even at a Pope's Mass. I mean, the largest crowds today, physical crowds, in the sense of sociability, including the body, is when the Pope reads a Mass somewhere in open air. Right? I mean, you cannot have a crowd, especially uh, in a circumscribed building, like in a stadium, without a risk of violence. I think this is there's always a risk of violence. I will say why I'm thinking that in a second. And secondly, um, uh, I don't think that people go there in order to be violent. Yeah? I mean, this is not, I mean, like people, uh, and that is the glory of crowds and crowd violence. I mean, it is true, it is a historical fact that on July 14th, 1789, the glorious day of the French Revolution, all of a sudden, nobody knows why, there were 80,000 people assembled uh, in front of that building that today still exists, Les Invalides. And those 80,000 people moved. Nobody knows why. There was no command. They moved towards the Bastille and conquered the Bastille, which was empty, which was a fortress, and there were like three or four prisoners in there. Nobody knows why, but that's the glory. I mean, you know, same, same with the October Revolution, 1917. 
foundation of the Soviet Union, it was also a crowd movement. So there are these glories. Now, why, why is there this risk of violence? I think there is a risk of violence. And in the first place, there is a long genealogy of intellectuals writing about that. You hardly find any public intellectual, important intellectual ever since a book of the 1890s in French, Le Bon, but then Freud, Ortega y Gasset, um, many, many of them until the present day, there's always this crowd content. You point to the danger of the crowd. And that is all true, although on the other side, historians glorify crowds, like the 1789 crowd, I mean, the crowd that achieves a revolution. Now, um, I think it has to do with the fact, A, that when you stand next to another body, and I think today we know scientifically why this is. So there's a tendency that you perform the same body movement that this other body is performing. Uh, today, the hypothesis would be, I mean, this is not my hypothesis. I just take that I import that into my own book uh, from neurology. This is mirror neurons. I mean, uh, the neuron uh, activated by seeing somebody jumping, for example, triggers a temptation or, or, or um, I mean, an impulse for you to jump. Then secondly, while you have this lateral sociability, you stand next to somebody and you tend to copy with your body what the body of these other persons are, these other persons are doing, uh, you have a transitive attention. Normally when you are together, may this be a Pope mass or may this be a baseball game or may this be whatever, uh, you have a focus on something. You have a focus on something. And this also gives you an impulse. Yeah? I mean, if this uh, final you know, home run is being scored, uh, if this touchdown is being scored, if this goal is being scored, I mean, beside identifying or copying the body movement of the other next to you, um, there is a body movement. You jump. Uh, you feel temptation to hug this other person next to you. So there is an expansion uh, of that crowd that can already uh, produce violence. Violence in the sense that violence is always the conquest of spaces with body against the resistance of other bodies. That would also include, by the way, this definition, rape. So, I mean, there's already a danger that all of a sudden uh, something is happening, this crowd is expanding and, and is hitting, so to speak, uh, the walls of that state. And then finally, this is metaphorical now, there is something vertical. I mean, when you are in a crowd and you feel that uh, those people assembled on this standing only part of the Dortmund Stadium, 30,000, uh, you feel that you become what I like to call a mystical body. You feel like uh, you become physically united, not only united in interest for the game with those other people. And that, this becoming a mystical body, um, always, uh, on the one hand, makes you feel this intensity, makes you feel euphoric in the literal sense of the world. I mean, you are in a certain mood together with these other bodies. But that's always and inevitably, I think, has a certain um, crowd risk. What that specifically means um, uh, for society in the United States and for a society that in its every day is as intensely... Uh, violent and threatened by violence as the American society is a question, dear Chuck, that I would like you to ask me. 
<laughs> well, uh, let me ask you this, because uh, you write a coming soccer age in continental Europe, in England, and finally also in South America will thus likely resemble the stadium environment in the professional leagues of the United States with their homogenous upper middle class mm-hmm. attendance, whose behavior does not really correspond to what I try to conceptualize as mm-hmm. the phenomenology of mystical bodies. So so what are what are, what are the obstacles to experiencing that mystical body when you are in a crowd in a stadium? I mean, first of all, if you are in one of those boxes in those expensive lounges, I mean, uh, you know, that's the same sociability like in any upper class party. I mean, in my experiences, I mean, as as some people even in the European soccer leagues know me, I write about soccer. But if you're a Stanford professor in Europe, you become a certain object of desire for sociability. So I get invited to that, but I'm always bored to death because nobody looks at the game. So there, there is no there is no intensity happening, and this will not happen. Um, and I do think um, that you know, if you only have expensive seats in a stadium, that is a good way for eliminating uh, the risk uh, of. Uh, violence, the risk of crowds. I mean, this is certainly true because I mean, seating your body doesn't really move, so this mirror neurons uh, will not be triggered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I have to say, and uh, when this book first came out in Germany, there was a lot of resistance uh, against this position. I have a huge sympathy for the so-called ultras. I mean, this, these hardcore uh, fans that are very faithful fans, that are normally not always working class. I mean, today this means above all unemployed fans. Those fans also who, uh, you know, when uh, the top soccer franchises, the fact, the fact of their franchise, top 16 wealthiest soccer franchises in Europe about two months ago were proposing a Super League, a league only for them, excluding uh, the less wealthy teams, in England, those ultra fans protesting violently, violently in front of stadiums made the Super League collapse. So those people don't have um, normally a political program. They don't, don't go to the stadium for a social, socialist party to win. But uh, nevertheless, and maybe that's a certain intellectual romanticism, uh, I do think they are, among other things, or they, they can be perceived and experienced um, as a remnant of your, what, you want to, what you could call proletarian culture that doesn't exist anywhere else. And uh, I think uh, some of the European franchises have been doing well by including representatives of this segment of the stadium crowd really in the management of the club. That happens, for example, I mean, I don't think that Dortmund is faithful to its Catholic working movement tradition, but nevertheless, the ultras are represented and the ultras are important. That doesn't exist in uh, American professional leagues, in American franchises. We have a much closer function equivalent to that uh, in the student section of college sports. Uh, I mean, the student section of college sports, you know, I mean, if we have our big game here, Stanford against Berkeley, that can get intense. It's a different culture from that ultra culture in the European soccer leagues, but there can be something. But I do think um, that's what I'm trying to write about in the preface. There is quite a distinct feeling of going uh it's also locally, but of going to a football game uh, to Notre Dame in Notre Dame, uh, 
or at Michigan uh, from going to an NFL game. I think the, the college football game, the college basketball game, also college women can get the basketball can get quite intense and I love to do that. So I'm much more a college sport fan, not because I'm a, I'm a professor emeritus here, but I think because it has a greater likelihood of producing this goose flesh feeding, this euphoria, this intensity. So what happens when you, you discuss this in your writing as well, what happens to our sense of shared humanity when we bracket the body from the social dimension of human existence and interaction, as you write? Because you, you point out that we may also speculate the coronavirus has only accelerated a long-term process of eliminating and bracketing the body from the social dimension of human existence and interaction, a process that has been going on since the emergence of early modern technology when our ancestors for the first time identified their existence exclusively with their mind or with their consciousness. So what happens to our sense of shared humanity when we do bracket the body from the social dimension of human existence and interaction? Yeah, I mean, in the first place, we have to say now in our conversation, as we have been so focused on the mystical body, on physical presence, on bodily presence, it sounds obvious. But of course, the way we normally tell the history, let's be, cautious of Western culture is that this, the elimination of the body, is glorious. I mean, one of the greatest philosophers in the Western tradition ever, Descartes, I mean, is the one who says, cogito ergo sum. I mean, I think, therefore I am. And what this sentence means, of course, is that uh, the totality of your real existence as a human being uh, excludes the body because it is enough uh, to be able to think it is enough uh, that processes take place in your consciousness, you exclude the body. And I think when we talk solidarity, for example, and even when Marx calls, uh, defines um, classes, I mean, I would definitely not call myself a Marxist, but of course Marx was one of the greatest minds ever. Uh, this tendency is to, to exclude the body. This tendency is to exclude the body which uh, I think, you know, has been a condition of what we call progress. I think it's a condition of what we call progress on the right-wing side and the left-wing side. I mean, this solidarity has been the socialist solidarity, but this include, exclusion of the body from your own class has also been capitalism. So it has been uh, Western history in a very intense way. But I think now, uh, with the electronic technology, we have reached a perfection in the exclusion uh, of the body that you could call this dialectical becomes dangerous. Because look, I mean, you could say, going back to sports, that the American professional leagues are the most perfect in the world in minimizing and excluding uh, the risk of violence from the stadium. Uh, an American stadium in that sense is much, quote, unquote, cleaner with a much lower risk of violence, you know, in the NFL, for example, than, than, than any first uh, uh, league rugby or soccer stadium in Europe. But, and this is where I'm going, uh, at the same time, of course, I mean, as you probably, I mean, I've heard a little bit, listened a, bit, a little bit into your broadcast, uh, are more aware even than I am. The risk that somebody shoots at you, as somebody uh, you know, is violent to you, some that your 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 daughter or your wife get raped going shopping is much higher in this country than in some other countries. So I precisely feel that the danger of making perfect this exclusion of the body, which is a very politically correct thing, I mean, exclude the body. 
uh, don't talk as if the body was important. This danger precisely is that then the violence come back, comes back in a not controlled way. You get my point. So I think if we push too far, this possibility in the sense of Descartes that our life is only intellectual operation, then I think uh, we are not maximizing, but we are running into a situation where violence may hit us in a way that we cannot predict and that therefore we can neither fight nor control. I want to get to your preface because the preface of your book for the English language translation, it's uh, you start by writing a week after the events of January 6th at the U.S. Mm -hmm. Capitol building and a week prior to Joe Biden being inaugurated president. You state that media commentators seem to agree right from the start in their use of the word mob with its irreversibly negative connotations in reference to the group of people who, without any obvious physically present leader took over that menacing role of agency. Much more positive, even charismatic concepts could have surfaced to describe a similar configuration of bodies and their movements had they been seen from a perspective of approval or enthusiasm. Why should we approve of and be enthusiastic about mob action? But I'm not saying necessarily uh, that uh, we should approve of it. I mean, you know, I think uh, the, um, let's say, you know, if, if, if Trump really had managed, which, which, which I think, yes, I mean, was, uh, I, I don't think anything ever was clear on his mind, but, but this was certainly the tendency to, 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 to continue his presidency in somehow a dictatorial status, dictatorial way. And if then we would have had quote unquote blue or democratic crowds, mainly from California, uh, conquering the capital, uh, the uh, intellectual commentaries would have been different. And nevertheless, the dynamic, if that would ever have happened, would have been similar. Uh, all I'm saying is that uh, there's a tendency, if uh, there's crowd violence uh, in a political context, and that crowd violence, quote-unquote, achieves what we like, I mean, like, when we look back at the French Revolution, or you know, even today with the October Revolution, 1917, we know that the Soviet Union was not only a success, but we do talk positively uh, about the, the, the crowd storm on the Winter Palace as the core event of October 1917 in Russia. Yeah? And had this been a right-wing crowd, we would talk negatively about it. I do that, of course. I mean, the sheer fact that since the fascist revolution 1923, Mussolini in Italy, uh, since I mean, Hitler was getting elected legally uh, in January 1933 in Germany, but then uh, in that night after the election, there was half a million sympathizers of the Nazis, uh, brown shirts, the SA people, with the risk of violence, walking through the streets of Berlin, and I hate it. So, I mean, you get my point. I want to say that we are quite biased. We, 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 we are in favor of crowds and their potential of violence if those crowds do more or less uh, what we think is good politically, and we are completely against it on the other side. And, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm uh, in the book, in the preface of the book, uh, trying to say this is problematic, not so much in the sense that we have to completely exclude it, but in the sense uh, that this phenomenon of crowds and its relationship to violence is profoundly ambiguous also because in the stadium uh, it implies 
uh, risk of violence. I think you cannot have that. But on the other hand, uh, it also implies the possibility and the emotionally fulfilling possibility uh, of feeling united in a way with other people that does not exclude your physical existence. You know, uh, these ideas of the mob, you point out that they come from a book by polymath Gustave Le Bon from 1892. How much are our images or our thoughts or even the media framing of the mob as always being something to be feared and something to be negative? How much is that all based on stereotypes? How much are those stereotypes we have today? How much is that based on something that is rooted in the 1880s to 1920s, a stereotype from 100 years ago? And what explains why that stereotype hasn't evolved? Yeah. I mean, I would say because, okay, I mean, let me just say something about this. I mean, uh, there is a long history. I mean, Le Bon was, yes, polymath, but I mean, not the uh, greatest intellectual in Europe or in France ever. Uh, it is also very clear uh, that uh, Le Bon was kind of pro-democratic, uh, pro-Third uh, Republic at that time in France, but he was from the upper classes. I mean, he was from an aristocratic family. So he felt um, uh, threatened by the mob. You know, I mean, there was some, I mean, if he was the one who really inaugurated this intellectual genealogy of talking about crowds as mob, and about as, as dangerous one-sidedly, unilaterally, uh, that was a vested interest. I mean, this, this was his position. But, but intellectuals, when they talk about crowds, when they talk about the masses, this is, I think, uh, with very few exceptions, always uh, negative. Yeah? And why this is so easy uh, for us intellectuals, I mean, to talk negatively about that is, of course, because, I mean, in our everyday, I think, I mean, I don't know exactly, Chuck, what your everyday is like, but in my everyday, even in emeritus, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, yes, I'm working, I'm working quite a number of days and I'm enjoying it, but I'm thinking, I'm writing, I'm reading. I mean, you, my, my, my body is not a nuisance, but it is a physical matrix, a physical condition for what I'm mainly doing, and this is not physical. So it is relatively easy from our life form as those who also, I mean, you much more than I do, have a certain impact on the public sphere to always negatively talk about that sociability that includes the body. I mean, the, what makes me perhaps, and I hope it a little bit eccentric, is that I mean, I'm one of not so many intellectuals. There are more and more intellectuals today who are sports fans. But I say, no, it's not only to watch the game. Uh, because if it was only about watching the game, I wouldn't mind watching it in an empty stadium. No, it is also about being part of this mystical body, of this crowd. And that, I try to admit, maybe I'm even exaggerating. That does not come, that is inseparable from this temptation of violence. I mean, when I'm in, in a stadium, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily feel, you know, that I want to hit other people. Let's say I want to hit Berkeley fans in a big game, as we call it, a football game between Berkeley at Stanford. But yes, I mean, my language is clearly closer to what we call violent language uh, than the language not only that I'm using in a classroom, but the language that I'm using in a game that I'm less passionate about.
You also point out that the Enlightenment canonization of representation as the basic building block of parliamentary yes. democracy made this tendency to separate ourselves part of our everyday life. From the same angle, any further step in the reduction of the physical side of our existence, including the present measures of social distance, can appear as progress or even as a movement toward the fulfillment of human destiny. Does representative democracy then promote social distancing? Is representative democracy about not being as much a part of a crowd? Well, I mean... We have to say again, I mean, this is what, uh, I, I don't like this word dialectics, not because it's a left-wing word that's rather positive about it, but because so many people use it in so many different ways. But I'm saying dialectic in the sense it's, it, it is ambiguous, yeah? in the sense that this exclusion of the body tendentially, if you compare with late medieval society and early modernity, go once again back to Descartes, I think therefore I am, this has been foundational for rationality as the principle of representation really invented uh, in the 18th century, invented by thinkers before the bourgeois revolutions, uh, was crucial and continues to be crucial uh, for what I think you and I share to think is, you know, the best existing uh, political form. Nevertheless, and, uh, you know, this is why we have the primaries in the U.S. And, and I think there's a concern. I think the first state in the U.S. in the early 20th century uh, was Oregon, uh, where people were feeling that they were so far away physically, so far away from D.C. that they had to do something about it. So, and the solution was you would have a first round, much more locally concentrated before the presidential elections would already happen. So I think in the sense, uh, while, of course, representation is a fabulous principle, a principle uh, with a huge potential of inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, and while uh, you can certainly connect and extend and make more sophisticated uh, uh, the political form of representation through electronic media, uh, I do think there's a danger if we don't have, on the other hand, and maybe much more strongly that, than has been the tendency recently, townhouse meetings, for example. Yeah, I mean, not only townhouse meetings, because there in the townhouse meeting, you can speak directly to who represents you in Sacramento or who represents you in D.C. I mean, directly in that sense, you can also communicate, you know, by electronic media. But uh, because uh, that is a type of sociability that includes the totality of what we are, not only the mind, but also the body, and including that, uh, and here's the ambiguity again, has something positive, this feeling of a euphoria, and you go out of such a meeting, of such a townhouse meeting, if it's good, you feel, you know, electrified, you feel intensified, or you feel very mad about that politician. So there's something positive to it, but it also always means that this direct feeling has a risk uh, of violence that cannot be eliminated. Uh, So this is why I think that the intellectual tendency to demonize crowds as mob, uh, to talk about violence as if it was only a question of good intention to eliminate it. I mean, all good people 
have never felt the temptation of violence. Uh, you know, I think this is too self-congratulatory, but not only too self-congratulatory, it is also de facto dangerous. And you write that it is my impression that the excitement and support that surrounds local hockey teams in Canada comes closer to the European soccer atmosphere than any sports environment in the United States. At least the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs appear to be as far away from movable franchises as the great soccer teams from London and Milan, Madrid or Munich. Their identity is intertwined in complex ways with the tensions between different cultures in the colonial and post-colonial history of Canada. What does it say to you about the United States when those kinds of tensions appear in European and even Canadian sports, even in Mexican soccer and baseball leagues, but they do not exist within the context of U.S. sports? What is it about the states that makes it so sports are not intertwined with more complex and permanent social identities? I mean, once again, I mean, because, you know, I became an American intellectual so late, I'm less uh, into self national self-flagellation than uh, American-born intellectuals are. So I was 40 years when I came here. Uh, I wouldn't say it doesn't exist in American sports. It exists much less in professional sports. There are certain franchises, by the way, that cannot move. You can could not imagine that to move the New York Yankees, for example, or Chicago Cubs. But yes, I mean, I agree with you, and then that's what I'm writing in the preface of my book, they're basically movable, and this is basically something I don't like, whereas it is completely unthinkable uh, to move the uh, le, 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 le haps, as you call them in Montreal, les le, le, le Canadiens, le, uh, completely impossible. Same with the Toronto Maple Leafs, proof being that they sell the most and the most expensive tickets in the National Hockey League, although both of them are pathetically unsuccessful. I mean, you know, I mean, Montreal won the last Stanley Cup, uh, I think, in the early 90s. I mean, with a goalie called Patrick Roy, who nobody remembers anymore, who I think was the greatest goalie ever in hockey. So uh, the U.S. has that, certainly, that equivalent, and, and, and not franchises, but teams with a profile in college sport. And college sport is something unique, and college sport is something that I think altogether manages the financial side in a way that's positive. Believe it or not, I do believe uh, that the income from Stanford football makes, I mean, Stanford's a very wealthy university anyway, but makes Stanford sports. I mean, sports like fencing, women's fencing, uh, you know, um, softball, et cetera, et cetera, possible. So that's a positive side about U.S. sports. But I do think that um, uh, the professionally, whose business model is something as leagues that I think European soccer could also learn from. But they have kind of abandoned this thing of historical, local um, uh, identity profile uh, in favor uh, of being franchises in the capitalistic, profitable sense of the word. I mean, in that sense, they are better organized. They have less debts, for example, uh, than European quote-unquote franchises. But, um, you know, I mean, I have to say, I, yes, I, I love to watch NFL. It's, uh, I, I love American football, which is problematic in and by itself, but I do. But um, I'm not terribly tempted to ever watch a 40, I mean, San Francisco 49ers game, which is very close to where I'm living. You know, to the stadium takes me 15 minutes uh, because the stadium atmosphere is shallow. We have been speaking with literary theorist Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, author of 
crowds the stadium as a ritual of intensity. One last question for you, Hans, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response here in the United States. Since Standing Rock, the protests in 2017 and 2018, the protests against for Black Lives Matter against racialized police yeah. violence over the summer of 2020, and now with mm-hmm. the events of January 6th, there are many pieces of legislature that are going through state houses right now in the United States mm-hmm. that would put limits and restrictions on protests. What happens mm-hmm. to the functioning of representative democracy when masses are prohibited? Can representative democracy survive the criminalization of the crowd? Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, I thought this question would be much more torturing for me. Uh, I do think I do think that uh, what happened after the assassination. I'm deliberately saying, uh, assassination of George Floyd in, in 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 I mean a year ago, more than a year ago already in the U.S. This activation of crowds uh, was something positive. I mean, my my children, not so young children, my my, my the younger younger of my four children, the Californian born of my four children, are thirty and thirty two years old. They went to these demonstrations, uh, you know, here in Northern California, okay, Silicon Valley, maybe not the most violent demonstrations. I was saying how peaceful it was. And that was good. And it was good. But, I mean, I don't think that this absolute peacefulness, so to speak, social distancing, social distancing, not, not even under, under COVID conditions, uh, is a conditions of the crowds. I do think that crowds are important. I do think that crowds are important with their potential of violence. Yeah? I mean, uh, I do think that for the status uh, of uh, the African-American segment in the American population, there have been moments of violence that were important. Yes, I will say this riskful sentence. Uh, and that is a reason why you have to have crowds. But then on the other hand, and that's, Chuck, what you are not going to uh, like me to say. Uh, you cannot just uh, demonize a pro-Trump crowd as mob. I mean, to say, okay, our crowds are very good and the other crowds are mob, that doesn't happen. I mean, you know, I'm at a, at a loss to explain uh, why people could be Trump supporters, but clearly at some point, and unfortunately... 70 million of our fellow citizens were Trump supporters. And if I say that it is important for living democracy, uh, that the gathering of crowds, also the spontaneous gathering of crowds with the risk of violence is possible, I cannot possibly say this exclusively for those crowds who share my political desires and my political position. That's why it's the question from hell, because our audience is probably going to hate your response. See, it worked Good. out. It worked yeah, out no, no, no. <laughs> See, I was brought up. I was brought up Catholic, so I mean, I have a fascination for hell. Yes, and that's uh, I was too, and that's why the show is called This Is Hell. Uh, Hans, I really uh, that's, why, that's why we like mystical bodies, both of us. See, because exactly. we haven't mentioned that. The concept of mystical bodies was first used uh, within the concept uh, in the third century, uh, a, 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 a
to describe Christianity, that this was a type of sociability which due to God's Son having been embodied around God's Son was a community that included the body. I mean, I'm no longer practicing Catholic, but here we go. This is uh, Catholic roots and identity, Chuck. I quit practicing because I was no good at being a Catholic. Me, me, me too, me too, me too. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, these roots that you get, you know. No, no, I mean, I haven't, I have not been for 50 years, I can say, with a good conscience in a church, except for art historical reasons. Nevertheless, these roots from First Communion, when I was eight years old, Back in 57, when I first watched the game in Munich, they have a long impact. Hans, I really appreciate you being on the show today. This is a fascinating, and even though it's a very short book, it's very thick with ideas, and everybody should be checking out your work, Crowds the Stadium as a Ritual of Intensity. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, Thank you for your questions, and thanks for your patience with my long professorial answers. (laughs) That's totally okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, Chuck. Bye-bye. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, this is hell. If you like what you just heard, please show your support, show your appreciation for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all of our merchandise and all the ways you can help support This Is Hell, including by just donating to This Is Hell or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Yeah, so this week's question from hell is what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience. Did you know that our audience was passionate and engaged? What else could they be? (laughs) Exactly. It sounds like they're on a honeymoon, actually. (laughs) Passionate and engaged. So, Adam A. says, I'm not going to say suicide booths or your mom. That is all. (laughs) Nick A. answers, the unified le- listenership of This Is Hell. <laughs> That's going to be a corporation? Good Lord, that thing's going to go under in no time. Max I answers DeWalt. <laughs> Apparently, we are in need of some construction tools. <laughs> I was going to say, some <laughs> fine power tools. Bradley R answers, I would go with one of those trendy mattress companies to help the listeners sleep at night after every episode <laughs> that would help actually probably would uh, grain alcohol would be a good one too <laughs> yikes dan k those zen booths at amazon warehouses <laughs> i don't even want to look up that image and uh what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience. Our Jeffrey answers, any corporation would have to pry their way in by force. (laughs) So Rocket, Benkheiser, Group, PLC, would employ its subsidiary company, KY Jelly, to lubricate a hostile coupling. (laughs) (sighs) I knew a guy who was in a band, and the name of the band, because of KY Jelly, was called Kentucky Jelly. And I thought it was just the dumbest name I've ever Anymore? Wally R answers, I'm thinking you could cut a deal with that meal delivery outfit, <laughs> then change the name of the show to This Is Hello Fresh. Oh, God. Or 
Hello, Fresh. Hell, oh. <laughs> okay. Martin F. answers, Smuckers. Because the people causing all the problems in the world today are a bunch of mother smuckers. Oh, good lord, Martin. We might have to cut you off. <laughs> Warren L. Preparation H. <laughs> what the hell? Just because it starts with an H? I I'm guess. I'm not sure I if uh, Ronaldo here got a little confused. <laughs> His answer was international, international, international beer. <laughs> That's a corporate sponsor. And uh, going along with that, Brandon S. says national beer. <laughs> and lastly, Krimsky K. answers Dr. Dre. <laughs> That's the corporate partner. That sounds great. Corporate partner of Dr. Dre. Fantastic. Uh, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. But we have to have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history a hundred years ago this past Sunday, but still this week. At the Drexel building in downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma, a young black man tripped while entering an elevator. Keep from falling, he naturally and instinctively reached out and grabbed the arm of the elevator operator, a white teenage girl who screamed and accused him of assault. Think about that. The Tulsa massacre started because a black person accidentally falling and reaching out for help touched a white person who declared that such contact was assault. Imagine being so racist that if someone of another skin color dares touch you, it's the same as assault. The teenage white girl would later retract the accusation and refuse to press charges, but not before the young black man, a shoeshiner by the name of Dick Rowland, a.k.a. Diamond Dick Rowland, was arrested the next day and taken to a local courthouse when a mob of, where a mob of angry white men soon arrived, ready to lynch Rowland, only to be met by a group of black residents ready to defend him. The confrontation escalated to the point of gunfire, leaving 12 people dead, 10 of whom were white. This incident triggered one of the worst acts of race, racist violence in U.S. history. From miles around, angry whites descended on the area in Tulsa known as Greenwood, a mainly African-American district also known as Black Wall Street, which had become one of the most economically prosperous neighborhoods in all of the United States. Local police stood aside and even deputized and handed out weapons to white mobs as they rampaged through Greenwood, killing people and burning down homes and businesses across 35 city blocks, which does not surprise me at all. Cops helping out white people kill black people. In just 16 hours, well over 100 people were dead, hundreds more were wounded, and the once wealthy Greenwood district was so thoroughly devastated that it would never really recover. Local newspapers blamed black people for investigating the violence and no whites were ever held accountable. In the years that followed as the Ku Klux Klan held rallies and marched through Tulsa, yes, they had rallies and marched through the same area that they burned down and committed a massacre for which they were never held accountable. The massacre was carefully forgotten by local government businesses and news organizations. It went unmentioned in American school curricula for almost a century. Now it has become a fixture of the final weekend in May. So let's all remember every Memorial Day, 
the racism, the lynching, the mass murder, the complicity by police. Let's all remember Tulsa every Memorial Day. Also in rotten history, this past Sunday, on May 30th, 1937, 84 years ago this week, amid a major strike that had already spread to some 30 steel plants across the United States in the midst of the Great Depression, some 1,500 Chicago steel workers, many accompanied by their families and children, marched on a mill owned by Republic Steel, demanding their right to strike and proclaiming their support for the Roosevelt administration's New Deal marching in support of the President of the United States and his policies. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? As the marchers made their way toward the factory gate, they suddenly encountered a line of some 250 Chicago police who blocked their way and ordered them to disperse. The cops were clearly not big FDR fans. The marchers refused to leave after a brief standoff and without apparent provocation. Some of the police opened fire on the crowd. Others caught demonstrators as they tried to run away and beat them with billy clubs. Ten people were killed, another nine were permanently disabled, and dozens more were injured. None of the police officers were ever prosecuted, of course. It's almost as if, whether it was 1921 Tulsa or 1937 Chicago, police could do whatever they wanted, even kill people, even encourage the killing of unarmed civilians with complete impunity. Is it any wonder police to this day think they can get away with murder? Finally, in Rotten History on June 3rd, 1968, 53 years ago, this Thursday, tomorrow, in New York City, a little-known writer named Valerie Solanas, who called herself leader and only member of the Society for Cutting Up Men, or SCUM, was angry with the highly successful pop artist Andy Warhol. By the way, thanks to everyone who answered last week's question from Mel, which was, what secret society do you want to join? Thanks to everyone who responded for not saying they wanted to join the Society for Cutting Up Men because you can't join as they only have or had one member. For more than a year, Valerie Solanas had tried to persuade Andy Warhol to produce a play she'd written, but Warhol had misplaced the manuscript and stopped taking her calls. Yeah, Valerie, I, I lost it and uh, quit calling me. Convinced that Warhol was trying to steal her work, Solanas showed up at his studio office and found Andy Warhol in a meeting with his manager and an art critic. Solanas pulled out a 32 caliber pistol, shot four times, hitting both Warhol and his manager. The manager was only slightly grazed, but Warhol was rushed to the hospital where he nearly died. The attack made headlines, but was pushed out of the news two days later by the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. And you gotta wonder, Sirhan Sirhan was a secret member of the Society for Cutting Up Men. Solanus, who turned herself into police, was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and would spend three years in psychiatric confinement. Warhol survived the shooting, but the bullets ripped so much flesh and muscle from his abdomen that he had to wear a surgical corset for the rest of his life to hold his internal organs in place. I mean, that sounds like medieval barber stuff. They make a, a corset to keep your organs in place? So what happens when you take it off to to take a shower or to clean it do your organs start falling out of place Ugh. that's rotten history and this is hell richard who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m chicago time here at thisishell.com tomorrow thursday we have rocio zambrana on her book colonial debts the case of puerto rico 
from Duke University Press, and in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin publicly shames himself. Ah, unlike all of his other moments of truth when he has not shamed himself. I can only assume that's what he's implying. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to our guest, Hans. Thank you, Hans. Also, thanks to Richard Norwood and Alex, Alex Jerry for booking today's guests, Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's hangover cure is pesto eggs, and they are delicious, possibly the most delicious hangover cure we've offered so far. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>